As is typical of my sermon writing practice, my mother is my primary conversation partner outside of Kay and Vicki. So a few weeks ago, I gave her a heads up that we were dealt a prickly set of text to draw from. I felt the weight of the choices more than I could hear God speaking through them. And the days went by, and then the storms came. Harvey, Irma, our national focus fixed on them. All the while, international journalists and recovery specialists screamed for us Americans to widen our gaze a bit and see that Southeast Asia is in a humanitarian crisis with floodwaters from the monsoon season claiming upwards of 800 lives and affecting millions struggling to survive. Water, the so desperately needed resource in our American West, was elsewhere becoming a weapon of mass destruction and leaving death and displacement in its wake. The Exodus narrative of epic escape through the deep and wide waters of the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, well, it started to call. And when I talked over my thoughts initially with my text, Vicki, in our clergy meeting, she said simply, well, it's kind of like it's all about dry land, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, we, we could use some of that. So several days ago when I was a few days into research and prep, my mom texted me, Lee, Al Roker is preaching your sermon. I had to stop for a minute. Uh, my mom, as her power was flicking on and off during Irma's take on South Carolina, was, of course, watching the Today Show and meteorolo meteorologist Al Roker's coverage. He was trying to describe this phenomenon that was occurring in parts of Florida's coast, like Tampa Bay, for example, where water was literally sucked up away from the ocean floor, creating total dry land where once the Gulf of Mexico had been. And then, as in these weather occurrences, the water does return, and it totally changes the coast. So Roker was saying, it's like the parting of the Red Sea. Now, please do not conclude that I'm arguing for the historicity of the miracle in our text today. I'm not. I'm not going to go there. Instead, I simply note that this story of the Israelite slaves running for their freedom with the Egyptian enemies, their own enslavers, at their heels and the waters of the Red Sea in front of them, well, it tugs at our longing spirits. We want to understand it. In fact, we want to see it, not because we're so enraptured with weather, weather patterns and phenomenon, but because we desperately want to be delivered from what we are up to our necks in. We know all too well the weight of the water and the impossibility of life's storms. Circumstances so much trickier than a series of texts to pull inspiration from. Real storms. Real storms. The cyclone of white supremacy hurling violent extremism through our nation and at the same time somehow settling into the warm and safe places in our own bodies. 
the steamrolling tide of gentrification eroding communities and livelihoods, the relentless surge of federal policies reinstating oppressions for queer and trans folks. This list goes on, and you know the list. Targeted communities drowned by the weight of injustices with no dry land in sight. So we yearn to see with the Israelites the realized dream of the promised land on the other side. But we can feel the water lapping at our feet. What will it take to get across? The thought of God's power harnessed by this human hand to part the impartable and make a way out of no way, well, that's a powerful, powerful image. It's a powerful thought, and it does speak to us. It calls to us, especially when we're stuck on the shore. Now, the Israelites, they're running for their lives, right? They, behind them is, is life in enslavement, an erasure of their human dignity. And ahead of them was the possibility of freedom, the potential, at least, of liberation. And while they follow Moses and they try for it, they keep hitting obstacles. So when we find them today looking over their shoulders at the fast approach of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and see ahead of them a dead end, they question. They question the reality of their own liberation. Is it even possible? To Moses, of course, they start screaming, why'd we even try? Take us back to Egypt. Let us be slaves. It'd be better than dying. Their longing for freedom was being just simply washed away in the weight of the struggle. And fighting forward through this watery impasse, well, it was too much. The very real danger of the return to slavery appeared to be the only path open to them. How could they pass the impassable, would their justice ever surface? Vicki and Kay and I joined together with 17 of our Methodist clergy colleagues this week, half racially identified as white and half racially identified of color. We joined this group. It's called Race, Justice, and Reparations. We're using Jennifer Harvey's book, Dear White Christians, as our source and our guide for hopefully creating a paradigm shift in the racial justice work specifically of our church. So the group's stated objective and intense hope is simply the active process of identifying and eliminating racism within ourselves and the New York Annual Conference by changing systems, organizational structures, policies, practices, and attitudes so that power is redistributed and shared equitably. Simple goals. So we met for the first time on Thursday. Now joining this group and being a part of the conversation and the action subsequent, well, it's a commitment. It is, in fact, an eight-week commitment. It says something that 20 crazy busy clergy at the beginning of the fall have found it important and possible to clear four hours of every Thursday for eight weeks to show up simply for each other, not 
because some district superintendent, God bless them, or a boss, God love them, asked us to. But there's more here than just time in this commitment. So as our conversation dove past the niceties and the talk of commitment, sinking deeper into this purposeful work, uncomfortable truths were spoken, and myths began to be challenged. Week one, barely into the threshold of hour two, and there was the palpable tension. You've felt it in your own justice work, haven't you? It was there. How could it not be? We signed on expecting discomfort to be part of the work. In fact, maybe it is the work. But it set in confrontation, deflection, defense, denial, confusion. The cycle had begun. And as we shared our sense of urgency for anti-racism work within our own conference and ourselves, the vastness of the problem emerged again. I heard person after person of color have to articulate just how much they did not want to be present, how weary of conversations about race they had become, how completely done they are with being put in a position to teach white people about whiteness. I heard. I'm talked out. I heard. If we aren't going to do anything besides talk, uh, I'm not staying. I heard, I need this, but I do not want this. And I was challenged to listen to the pain in that room, to listen to the anger, to listen to the mounting injustices that I have not had to face. I reflected later how my own eagerness to join the group, well, it betrayed my naivete, my privilege, the ease with which I can enter and exit these and similar conversations. I noticed my own internal defensiveness to spin how but this conversation, this time, this group would be different. But the reality of failed efforts of the past is one that I cannot deny, nor is it my place to or do I want to. It turns out, and we all know, that there's a cost to this justice work. And it is almost exclusively carried by the ones who need the justice the most. In the end, in my mind, I couldn't fathom or formulate one reason why the individuals and my friends and colleagues of color should be in that room. We were all anxious, though, to see kind of how this would play, if the usual pattern would stall and stop our work, distancing partners and moving nowhere. That's what usually happens, right? The impasse appears at the very moment we're asked to think, do, and be something different. We usually stop there because we reach a place where we see water ahead. And all we see behind us is failed escape. You could sense how the entire group was crying out for dry land in the face of all that damn water. And you could sense in your body, as I did, the urgency bearing down on each of us differently, but assuredly present. We didn't want to cede hard-won progress in racial justice, but we didn't want to return to dead-end options of the past. 
we kept talking. When the Israelites met that shoreline and had opted for the devil they knew in Egyptian occupation, well, Moses, poor guy, was at a total loss. He tries to come up with something, and he tells the people, Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. You need only be still. To this, I love this, God says, What? God's like, Don't stand there. Move. The Hebrew word nasa translates forward, journey. God's saying, no, Moses, don't stand still. You're not as stuck as you think you are. And God's saying, no, Israelites, you cannot go back. Walk or step or run, whatever you got to do, but keep moving forward. Moses and the Israelites had forgotten one major part of the equation. They could see the enemy. They could remember past failures. They could see the obstacle clearly in front of them, and they could imagine more pain ahead. But they had forgotten God. They forgot they weren't alone on the shore. There's an incredible story that Kay turned me on to that comes from rabbinical literature. The story takes place before the sea splits, and it centers on one of the Israelites on that shoreline. There was a man named Nachshon, who was a leader among the people, and he was in this mix of folks that were running from these pursuing enslavers. So they reached the impassable sea, and this mayhem erupted. The people were revolting, Moses was praying, and he asked God for safe passage. He begged for the dry land. Part the sea, he prayed. Nothing happened. Nobody would step foot in the water that was clearly having no way through. And there was this endless round of, you go first. No, no, you go first. No, no, you. And then Noxion walked to the edge of the water. He stepped. The water came up to his ankles. He took another step. The water went up to his knees. He stepped again. The water rose to his waist. Step, his chest. Another, the water was up to his neck. One more step, and he would go under He would be lost, and the deliverance would be sealed as surely as the water closed over his head. Nakshin took another step, and the waters parted, and the dry land appeared. God acted, and Nakshin did too. Journey forward, God cried to the Israelites. And God continues to cry that to us still. It feels important to me that these two figures, who were leaders in the crossing of this sea, Moses, Nakshan, neither of them made it to the promised land. Neither of them saw the ultimate fulfillment of their own liberation. But it would have been impossible to get there without either one of them. The journey towards justice took different leaders at different times through different obstacles. And it makes me think that for each of us, there is a time for us to do our part in the parting. 
to step out into the water and to lead. And there is a time when it's someone else's place, too. We can only make it to the dry land of justice because we do this work as a people, as God's people. And we have to discern for ourselves, with the help of God, when it is our time to step up. Words from one of my colleagues has stuck with me since Thursday's session. He said during our time, there's something about the justice of God in the midst of experience. It requires us to risk. It's about continually taking that risk. And I think he's right. The dry land of justice motivates us only so far without seeing it. Eventually, we will hit the impassable sea. And in that moment, in those moments, we must risk having felt heartache before. We must risk having suffered disappointment in the unrealized revolution of love and justice for everyone. We must still risk having forgotten entirely about the power of God to move mountains, part seas, and change the landscape of the world and the landscapes of our souls. We are still asked to risk and take the step forward to the journey.